morning. This morning we are reading from Genesis chapter 34, verses 1 through 31. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give you. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city, and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land enlarge enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of their sons of Jacob, Simeon, and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord.
If you are visiting with us, we are working our way through Genesis, and we are following the historical account of Abraham, his family, and their descendants, and how God preserved, first proclaimed and preserved his plan for saving the human race through this one man, Abraham, and his family, and their descendants. And now we're into the third generation. We're dealing with Jacob and his family. And again, as you see many times over, the plot of Genesis sometimes makes our R-rated Hollywood movies look tame. And here you go. Uh, Actually, the background to this tragic episode is that Jacob should have never settled near Shechem. Should have never been there. It was an attractive ancient city. It was poised right on a strategically, right in a Middle Eastern trade route. So there were many benefits uh, to being near Shechem. But God, if you read back over the last few chapters, God had called Jacob back from northern Mesopotamia, where he had been for 20 years. God had called him back to Bethel. Bethel was where Jacob's faith story really began. And that's where God had called him to return, but that's not where he ended up. He, He continued to raise his children in Shechem, right outside of its major influences. So now his older boys are in their 20s, and his daughter Dinah, some scholars say, is probably about 15 years old. Now when we read in verse 1 of chapter 34 that Dinah went out to see the woman of the land, uh, we should be asking ourselves, why is a teenage girl strolling through a Canaanite city unchaperoned? Uh, Was it Was it an issue of parental negligence? Uh, Was it simply adolescent curiosity uh, and foolishness? Uh, Maybe it's both. Uh, We're we're not even clear uh, if she was raped or not. We're not even sure whether it was a brutal rape or whether it was an alluring seduction uh, of, of a minor who was unable to really discern what was going on. It's not clear. What is absolutely clear is that Dinah was abducted. She was taken and she was held captive. Uh, And whether she was raped or seduced, she lost her virginity. And that was just the beginning. Uh, In the end, an entire city was slain and pillaged and plundered. Let's imagine how all of this would be processed by today's news media and, and by the pundits, right? The talking heads that we see on the internet and on cable television. Let's consider how the whole affair would be uh, processed on social media. You know, when you, you get out your phones, when you go home and after you have lunch and you start scrolling and you're seeing what people say about this event. Well, don't you think some, some would probably blame Dinah, right, for being careless. Maybe she wasn't dressed appropriately. Maybe, maybe she was being a flirt. Who knows what some people would say. Maybe some people would blame Shechem, this young man full of lust, this young rich kid with a sense of entitlement and arrogance, just taking what he wanted and his daddy backing him up and and, uh, performing a bribe. Maybe some people would blame Jacob for being an absent father, for being neglectful, for being indecisive, for being afraid. Maybe some people would blame her older brothers, Simeon, Levi for their bloodlust, for their rage, and qualify this as an act of terror upon an entire city 
an entire village. Some people would say, this is a woman's rights issue. Some people would say, no, this is a parenting issue. That's the problem. Some people would say, no, this is a male dominance issue. That's the problem. Some people would say, no, it's a circumcision issue. That, it's, that's the problem. The, the International Coalition for Genital Integrity would, ha- would be outraged over all the senseless circumcisions taking place on unwilling participants in a short period of time. And they would say, this is a flint knife problem. If we could just ban all flint knives, people wouldn't be circumcised against their will. That's the problem, flint knives. You'd hear all sorts of things, right? But seriously now, how, how do you process horrific, complex current events when everybody has an angle? When every group and every leader has an agenda, how do you process what's going on in the world? How do you process what maybe even you have experienced personally? And so today I want to briefly talk about the severity of this situation that we're reading about. And the complexity of the responses to the situation. And finally, we need to talk about the way to justice. Because it's a terrible injustice on many levels. But basically, just in short, uh, for you know, 20 to 30 minutes, the severity of the situation, the complexity of the responses to it, and a way to justice. Now, the severity of the situation was actually worse than, than we might think in our contemporary contemporary way of looking at it it's more than it's more it's about more than just a young girl being abducted and raped or seduced and then held captive see now now it is virtually impossible for jacob to negotiate a marriage for her let's assume that he doesn't want her to marry the creep shechem well now what is she going to do Publicly, she has been humiliated. Have you ever read a Jane Austen novel? Right now, everybody knows about the situation. Whether it's her fault or whether she was completely a victim, she's spoiled goods from the perspective of community and society. Now, how is Jacob going to find a worthy husband for his daughter? And who would, who would pay a respectable ancient bride price for her? Later on, much later, centuries later, the Mosaic Law uh, for, for Jacob's descendants, the Mosaic Law would seek justice for this very type of circumstance. You read about it in a couple of places. I'll just mention Exodus chapter 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride part, equal to the bride price for virgins. Right? You break it, you buy it. And then even if you're not allowed to have it, you pay the full price. You make full restitution and you don't abandon her. But Jacob's family doesn't have the Mosaic law to guide them. That would come much later. And so you see Jacob as this, can't really judge another man, another father, but you see him as indecisive. And, and somewhere in the process, you see that it is now his sons negotiating with Shechem and Shechem's father, who's really in charge of the whole city, Hamor. And you see his sons take justice into their own hands. 
and matters get abundantly worse. And at the end of the account, I'm not going to go through all of it, but at, at the end of the account, there's an interesting interaction that takes place between Jacob and two of his oldest sons, her older brothers, uh, Simeon and Levi. In verse 30, Jacob says to these two uh, young men, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land and the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. You know, he said, we have neighbors, guys. And we now, we're, we're newcomers in the land, and we stink to the people around us. There's actually, you know, even though Jacob is indecisive, even though, and what's interesting is it's un, uncharacteristic of Jacob to be indecisive. He always seems to know exactly what to do to benefit himself. That's what is characteristic of Jacob. So you, you see an uncharacteristic indecisiveness in Jacob, but what you see that is very characteristic of Jacob is a, is a self-interest in his reasoning. Right? He's worried about himself. He's worried about how he's going to look. He wants to make the right maneuver, and so he's indecisive, and his sons take over. But there's a good point to what he's saying about living at peace with the people around you, especially if you're very different than the people around you, and they were very different as a family. And this principle comes up in Proverbs chapter 16. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. It's interesting, though. His sons come back with a response. And in verse 31, the young men reply to him, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? See, they're worried about justice. Dad, how do you let a thing like this happen? And how do you let it happen to one of us? They have a point. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, we read this. You shall not accept a bribe. That's basically what that's basically what Shechem and his father Hamor were doing. Look, we're, they're not at all convicted or worried about what they've done, right? But they're going to throw a lot of money. They're going to say, "Hey, you name the price. We want the girl." They're still holding her captive, and they're saying, "We want the girl. We want to keep the girl." Uh, look, let's start intermarrying, and we'll trade together. It'll be good for your family. It'll be good for our community. Jacob was wealthy, and he had a lot of stuff. This will be good. It's a good trade agreement, and it can all begin with this marriage. He's really being bribed. And so Deuteronomy chapter 16 says, You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow. So despite their horrific response to what happened to their sister, there's an important point that they're making to their dad. Justice, dad. Justice. So who is right? Are the boys right? Is dad right? What do you think? I think it's complicated. I think it's really complicated. One commentator says Jacob became an appeaser in this situation and his sons became the Avengers. Uh, Not the Marvel Avengers. Uh, So you have a dad who becomes an appeaser and you have his sons who simply become avengers of their sister. Uh, And the scholar went on to say, but neither perspective was about justice. 
I think pursuing justice requires a respect for the complexity of things. To pursue justice, I think we need to be respectful of the fact that things in the world like this are complicated. Matters of injustice and how we respond to them as individuals, as a society, government, first responders, leaders, law enforcement. These issues are complex. And you know, there's not always a clear course of action. When we as Christians, and I, 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 I know most people in the room are Christians. If you're not, I'm glad you're here. I think this is really valuable for you to consider. Uh, but as Christians, how do you process the news that you hear and read about? How do you process current events? How do you process politics in a situation? How do you process social media when your friends and relatives are saying things about what's happening in the world? And you're reading it, maybe posting responses and replies yourself. I want to say two things about how we process everything. We, we cannot possibly understand all the dynamics. We cannot possibly know all of the facts. And I think we need to be aware of that when we process difficult situations. We can't know all the facts. And we cannot, with our limited perspective, know and understand all of the dynamics. And I think if we're honest about that, we develop a humility a humble respect for people in distress. We don't immediately judge them for the trouble they got themselves into or the crimes they've perpetrated. We have a humble, res- humble respect for people in distress despite the decisions they make. And we develop an appreciation for leaders and first responders who must act. You know, we get to armchair adjudicate the things we read about. Our elected officials and our first responders, they don't get to do that. Sometimes they have to act even even before they have all the information that we read about the next morning. So develop a humility that says, I don't know, I don't understand all the dynamics. I don't know all of the facts. And I appreciate the people who are bound to respond even before they fully comprehend what has taken place. So that's the first thing I want to say as we process things as Christians. The second thing I want to say is we cannot simply be consumers of what we read and hear. We we cannot just be consumers of news. We have to be evaluators of what we hear and what we read. Uh, The Christian pastor and theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer now, this, is, this goes back 40-some-odd years. He said this in the 1970s, that the news media can be used by the elite to manipulate public opinion. Huh. Isn't that fascinating? A, an American Christian, a Presbyterian pastor, by the way, 40 years ago, 40 years ago called it and said, Hey, I've noticed that, that the elite can use the news media to... Uh, to uh, to manipulate public opinion. It's been happening in our society since the founding fathers, actually. And one writer, talking about Francis, Francis Schaeffer, uh, said this about him. Would Francis Schaeffer listen to national public radio or watch Fox News? Which would he choose? Probably neither, as a sole source of information about the world. And probably 
he would listen to both as part of an even broader familiarity with a wide range of news outlets in order to understand the spirit of the age. In order to understand the spirit of the age. See, that's not being a consumer. That's being an evaluator of what we read, of what we hear, and of what we see. So I think in, in, in all social movements uh, that our society is debating and we're wondering as Christians or as people who are exploring Christianity and trying to understand what is its perspective, uh, as, 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 we, as, we discern, as we try and discern what are these social movements about and should we support them, should we talk about them and get involved, uh, also uh, political agendas. This, we have to respect the complexity of things and be discerning about our media intake. Always asking the question, what is the spirit of the age and what is the biblical view? And making sure that we're comparing those two things. What is the spirit of the age? Not just let me click and find the channel that I like to hear the most because I agree with them, but what is collectively, as I consider various opinions and various sources, what is the spirit of the age? And how does the spirit of the age compare with the biblical worldview? So, for instance, with Dinah's tragedy, as we consider sifting through Jacob's response to it and his boys' responses to it. We think about the boys' positions of justice, justice. We must make restitution and it's going to be us and it's going to be now. And Jacob, hold on, hold on. Let's think about this. Let's think about this. Let's hold our peace. We're neighbors here. We've got to get along with everybody. Uh, when, we, when we sift through all of that, here's a possible way to think of it. Pursuing justice Without resorting to vengeance requires that we remember there is only one judge. There's only one judge. It's his laws that have been broken in this situation. So how do we pursue justice without robbing the one judge of his right to repay? would have to move forward from there in how we think about it and how we talk about it whether it's over lunch with a friend or whether it's you know you reply to somebody's post on social media have you noticed the absence of God's perspective in this chapter God's not mentioned once he's not quoted once they don't talk about him totally silent so I want to share an interpretation principle. This is an important, and some of you have heard this before if you've been with us long enough, one important principle in how to interpret this ancient book, the Bible. There are prescriptive parts of the Bible, and there are descriptive parts of the Bible. In this passage, Genesis chapter 34, is not prescriptive. It is not telling us what to do and how to do it when we're in crisis. It is descriptive telling us what happened. There are passages in the Bible that tell you what to do. And there are passages in the Bible that tell you what has happened. And this is one of those. This is simply what's happened. And God's absence in the passage is strategic by the narrator of Genesis. This is a theological statement. 
And this is it. That Jacob had settled in the wrong place. Now, certain things are not his fault for happening. Nonetheless, the point here is that Jacob had settled where God didn't want him and had raised his family there. And so while we can't blame Jacob and Dinah for certain things happening, we can say that there are consequences to the decisions that he made. And what's interesting about this is the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, God comes right back into the story. And this is what God said to Jacob. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now listen to how Jacob responds because he's finally leading. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. When we reject God's influence, we mismanage our trials. When we put God out of our lives, when we put him out of our perspective, when we just consume what the world has to say and what we're seeing, and we reject his perspective, we reject his voice, we will mismanage our crises. Jacob mismanaged his concern. It's good to be concerned. Jacob mismanaged his concern and it led to his indecision and his inability to protect and defend his daughter and to control his sons. Simeon's and Levi's mismanaged anger. Hey, it's good to be angry. Anger anger is a smoke signal in your soul that something is wrong in your life or in the world. Anger is not a bad thing, but their mismanaged anger led to vengeance violence. What matter have you mismanaged because you have silenced God's wisdom in your life? What are you mismanaging because you have muffled the voice of God in your life? You know, the way to justice is covered by the shadow of the cross. This is what I think is beautiful about the Christian message, that justice, justice is always, is always following the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. Back to the Mosaic Law in Leviticus chapter 24, you may have heard this. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury, he has given a person shall be given to him. Some of you thinking of other historical sources may think of the code of Hammurabi. Now, some people look at this and and they're offended and they think this is some ancient archaic thing. This is grotesque. This is horrible. You know, oh, you gouge my eye out. I'm going to gouge your eye out. It just seems horrific, but it's actually not at all. This, this is, this is what's so good about passages like that in the old Testament. Um, It's not a vengeful passage. It's just the opposite. It's opposing vengeance. Do you see that it's limiting the degree of retaliation? It's saying, if somebody plucks your eye out, you're not allowed to destroy his entire city. He needs to lose an eye. 
in his punishment, the discipline inflicted upon the offender needs to be proportionate to the offense. This exact law that would come along later speaks against what Simeon and Levi did. They took their, their anger and they blew it out of proportion. You know, there was, there was one just sentence that was astoundingly inappropriate. And it's in the Bible. When Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, hung on a Roman cross, it was a just sentence. Because he hung there to be judged for the countless sins of humanity. So the sentence that was placed on Jesus by both Gentiles and Jews was just because he was hanging there for my sins and for yours. But the sentence pronounced on Jesus Christ was scandalously imbalanced. The punishment, you can't, the punishment not only didn't fit the crime, there was no crime for his punishment. He had done nothing wrong, but he hung there. Didn't we read earlier, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 said, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And you see, that's where justice begins. And I've said this before, the reason God can be merciful is he's already been just when Christ hung on the cross. And, and so now, since justice has been served on the cross, the Christian can live by mercy. We don't ignore justice. But when we cannot serve out justice, when we have to wait for justice to come, we can wait because we know that justice is poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is the basis. Jesus, knowing that, that justice would be poured out upon him for our sin, he was able to say this in the Sermon on the Mountainside, Recorded in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. He's not saying be a doormat. He's not saying you can just let everything and anything happen and not respond to it. That's not what he's saying at all. What's going on here is this, that vengeance, that vengeance and restitution are not the greater goal of God's work in humanity. The greater goal of what God is doing is to show his mercy and grace to a world that doesn't deserve it. So the Christian community can pray for justice, can within the means of God's holy word can pursue justice while offering mercy. And sometimes, you know, do, do you offer mercy to someone who, who has been convicted of a crime and needs to pay restitution and serve time? Uh, in certain situations, no, you can't. And our government and our leaders and, and our law enforcement can't. But what all of us can do as Christians in our heart is to practice mercy. Even if somebody has to serve a just sentence in our heart, we can practice mercy. And I think that's how 
we work through complicated, horrific, troubling issues in our world, in our society, like what happened to Dinah, like what happened to the city in, uh, in, in, in which she was abducted at the hands of her brothers, this complicated issue where nobody seems to figure out how to do justice and how to practice uh, good peacemaking, uh, we have to realize things are complex. We need to humble ourselves and say we don't know all the facts, we don't understand all the dynamics, and we need to do more than consume all the data. We need to discern the data. We need to evaluate what we hear and what we see. And remember that justice was served on the cross. And while we pray for justice and while we rightly pursue justice, we must, in our hearts, practice mercy. Pursue justice from a posture of mercy. And I think that's the way Christians, who even disagree on our responses to what's happening in the world, I think that's how we are good neighbors in this world. I think that's how we achieve unity together, despite our differences of opinion about certain issues. Uh, is that we, we have to pursue justice and mercy at the same time, always, and in our hearts. Uh, so I just pray that you'll think about that this week. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, who, are we to, uh, who are we to accurately and always discern uh, the best way to deal with a conflict, the best way to deal with a crisis? Father, have mercy on the men and women in our society who have been appointed or elected or commissioned to act even before they have all the facts straight. Father, we ask for great discernment. We ask for, 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 for decisiveness and caution that they would do what is right in the interests of everyone. We ask for humility as we process what we see and what we hear, uh, not only as American citizens, but more importantly, as your sons and daughters as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which will last forever. Give us hearts that long for and pray for and seek justice while also practicing mercy. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, who is the perfect, the perfect uh, person where justice and mercy come together. In his name we pray. Amen.